those of us who have wanted in our lives to be more purposeful, we become more purposeful. So there it is, life and death, they go hand in hand. I am grateful for my life. I know I'm gonna face death. Come along on a journey toward wisdom. I say celebrate life, embrace it, live it fully, and wear out, don't rust out. This is Seeker with Dave Jenks. I'm Matt Hayes. Dave, in one of our previous episodes, we, we started to get into the topic of about death and talking about kind of what, what we need to think about when it comes to our end of life and death in general as a topic in society, because it's not something that we openly talk about and have real conversations about. Almost in a way, it's a very private, taboo thing. Why is that, first off? Well, I think it's a challenging topic. We brought it up under considering healthcare, so sometimes you can look at it from a distance and how the medical industry works and how it deals with death and dying and you know palliative care versus curative care and all those kind of things. And it's one thing to be observant and analytic about it. But when it comes down to your own existence, you go, whoa, I, I don't think I want to talk about this. This is kind of a negative thing. I don't want to be imagining. So I think most people don't like to talk about death because it's the end of life. And the other is the things that we know typically wrap around death, pain and physical difficulty and chewing away of resources and losing capacities. And all of that, it makes it, you know, not a very pleasant topic. So I would say it's because it's a difficult topic. And I think a lot of times in life, and this is important, it's those difficult things that when you really think about them, your life takes a positive change. When you really think about what you want to do in your career and you really give that serious thought and what are the skills you want to build and how do you want to serve society and how are you going to make a living? When you start to get serious about that, good things start to happen. When you get serious about the entrepreneurial business you have and you did like we talked about a couple of sessions ago about getting what you want, about goal setting and planning, things get better. And in my experience, because I put it off long enough, I really began about four years ago, five years ago, to really deal with this issue of death and dying. Now I was older, so it made sense to do. And then I began to realize there are things I needed to take care of. And as I took care of those things, and we'll talk about them later, I felt more comfortable. I felt I was leaving a legacy of things being cared for that didn't therefore fall on other people's shoulders. And then it also got me thinking about what kind of medical choices do I want to make when I get into my end game? And that's been very useful because I think I'm more prepared for it mentally. I think I'm more prepared for it in a decision-making point of view. I'm more prepared for it in that I've shared with the loved ones around me who probably will be in a way my caregivers to some degree about what my wishes are and intentions are for that, which I think has been helpful to them. You know, they were a little uncomfortable about talking about it at the beginning, but truthfully, I think they were glad that I was sharing with them my point of view, and then they could feel comfortable about what they were going to do when I got to that point. So I think that, you know, as much as it's a natural part of life, in fact, I will tell you, one of the very first times I really encountered my own feelings about death was when I was going to take my own life. I was walking out in the boondocks of the Adirondack Mountains, January of 1983, and I was going to end my life. I was going to freeze to death out there because I felt my life was, was a mess and I had screwed it up. The world would be better off if I wasn't there. But in that confrontation with that idea of ending my own life, I began to grip, get hold of life. I had a conversation with God on this path out there and I saw life and death happening all around me. Trees that had fallen, young trees that were growing, birds that were flying through the air. You and I realized that the natural cycle of life is life and then the end of life. And then it made me realize that that's really, it's that end of life which gives us a sense of urgency and purpose. If life was just totally 
without end. We could do whatever we wanted. There wouldn't be any sense of getting things done or urgency or meaning or legacy. But because it does have an end, even we don't necessarily know when it's going to be, we begin to take it seriously. We begin to act. We begin to do things. And I think those of us who have wanted in our lives to be more purposeful, we become more purposeful. So there it is. Life and death, they go hand in hand. I am grateful for my life. I know I'm going to face death. You said four years ago, you you kind of took a step back and started to ask yourself these questions about your own potential death and looking at it a little differently and, and going through some things to make sure things are in order. What sparked that? And why do we personally as humans have a problem even getting to that point where we sit down and take a look at it and, and kind of have an honest conversation with ourselves and our loved ones about what's going to happen to us someday? What can we learn from that? My curiosity got tweaked. So I guess as a seeker, uh, I saw a book by uh, Ira Bayok called Dying Well. And I went, wow, that's an interesting thought. Dying well. Well, here I am. I'm this old guy. I'm semi-retired. Probably going to be a whole long time before I'm facing that personally. I read what he had to say, and it was very provocative. I recommend the book, Dying Well. It's about this whole issue of facing your life. And he is a hospice physician, so he's worked with lots and lots of people who are at the end of their life. And it tells a lot of stories in there, and it's all very different at how they approach it. And there's not like just one simple way. But he really got me thinking about what do I think about my end game, how I want that to go. And it, it got me thinking about that. And then I, I read another book of his called Best Possible Care, and then a book uh, by nurse, some nurses that was called Final Gifts, which are about the way that they have learned as hospice nurses that people at the end of their life really come to these very sort of wise understandings and insights that they share. And that got me thinking about, okay, how does this whole end of life? Well, I think as you're getting to the end of your life, and it is difficult to face that because it has that finality to it. And those of us who are optimists and positive thinkers, like I clearly am, you sort of say, well, you shouldn't give that much energy. Well, you shouldn't give the energy of, oh my God, death is going to happen. And oh, I wonder when and start to worry about it and be concerned about it because that will drive you in a negative cycle toward not living fully. But if you say, okay, this is going to have, there's going to be an end game and I'm living fully now. In fact, maybe this allows me to appreciate even more the life I have now, the vitality, the energy, the physicality, the mentality, the relationships I have. So at least by reflecting on my end game, I heighten my current game, my current embrace of life and all of its potentials. But I think that it got me thinking then, Matt, about what are all of the details and how do I want it? Not that I can control it, but given the kind of things that might happen, what would be the things, how would I want to handle that? And we'll talk more of some of the details of that later. And then the more I went down that path, the more I said, well, you know, there are some things I need to do legally and put in writing so that those people, those people close around me will know what I want and what I want to happen as I move toward that end. And then I think the other thing, again, that we'll, we'll get to, Matt, is this. It got me really thinking about, okay, if I'm confronted with cognitive dysfunction or Alzheimer's, if I'm confronted with a debilitating uh, disease like cancer, or if my heart fails me, you know, I've already had bypass surgery, so I've done some aggressive things to try and extend my life. If these things start to get worse and I start to get debilitated, then how do I want that end game to go if I have any choices in it? And I think those are important questions to face and answer. And in the end, I will just say for whatever energy I gave it, which hasn't been like continuous, it hasn't brought me down. And if it's done anything, it's made me feel responsible and good because I took care of the 
the logistical legal details. And then it's made me feel good because I'm really enjoying and have even greater gratitude for the life that I have right now. Based on that, Dave, let's talk about the logistics. Uh, It even feels weird saying that, talking about this topic, but it's so important to do. Let's talk about the specifics of things that you did and that we as, as human beings should think about and do when we approach this topic. What are the things that we should think about as we are thinking about what happens to us after we die logistically and planning and, and all the specifics to make sure that people are taken care of? It goes in three stages to me. One, there's the sort of technical paperwork side. It involves some personal decisions and all that, but there's that sort of legal side. And then I think there's the medical side. How do I want to be taken care of, particularly as I start to really deteriorate? And then the third one really is about kind of more spiritual and relationship-based issues that I'm going to face as I get toward the end of my life. The first one is you want to have a will because if you have any assets at all, you want to know how you want them distributed. And then you need to decide who's going to have the power of decision-making, who's going to be your representative or your trustee of your estate. You're going to give them powers of attorney. Also, when you give them powers of attorney, they can make financial decisions. If you're incapacitated, if you have an injury, you're unconscious or whatever, and yet there are still things in your life that have to go on financially, they can take that on your behalf. So you give them a power of attorney a power of attorney for property. And then you also may be the same person or it may be another person. In one case, one of them is my brother. In the other case, it's my son. And that is your medical power of attorney. And they're the ones who really are the guardian who act on your behalf regarding your medical attention and care. You've delegated to them that authority. And of course, you do it with indications of your preferences for how you want to be handled in uh, dire physical circumstances. But they have that final decision making on behalf of you and the family. And then you want to uh, do your advanced directives. In other words, do you want a DNR, a do not resuscitate? Do you want some description of when they can pull the plug or when they need, or do you want to assert that they should do everything to keep you alive right up as long as they can? You get to say that. It's called advanced directives. A part of that is also like a living will. Are there things I would like to do with my organs? If any of my organs, when I pass away, say I had an accident, I died pretty instantly and my body parts, you know, some of them were still, you know, kind of usable. Then how do you want those used? How do you want those given? or do you are you willing to give your body over to medical profession for their study and their training of other people all of these are things that, to think about and to think about what your preference is for that then also you want to consider how do you want your remains handled so if you decide not necessarily to give your body to science then how do you want your remains handled do you want them buried do you have a, a place you do want to be buried then you should have a cemetery plot and you have to set make arrangements for that you know what kind of casket and all those kind of things then there's all the ceremonies. Do you want a funeral? Do you want a uh, gathering, a memorial, a celebration? What do you want to happen at that? You know, if it's important to you to leave a statement, what do you want to have happen? Maybe you'd even record something that could be played there or something that could be read there. Do you want some special service? Is it very important to you, given your religious beliefs, that service have a certain religious orientation and and liturgy to it? So you want to be specific about that. And then, of course, there are any special requests that you want to make of how to be remembered or how, how to be memorialized. So all of these things are decisions that other people are going to have to act on. And if If you don't do any guidance on it, then you leave them that burden of responsibility, which is often very difficult and particularly at a time of maybe a feeling of the loss of you. So the more you can put this paperwork in order, 
the more things move smoothly and you make that better for other people. And I can just tell you personally, I feel so much better having taken care of that, having talked with my brother and my son about those details so that they know what my wishes are and they weren't uncomfortable talking about it. I mean, it, it was obviously we're paying attention, but they weren't down about it. They didn't say, oh, don't bother me with this or, or please, please, let's not talk about it. And then you're always saying to them what you're saying to yourself, but I don't intend to die right away. I mean, I want a long life yet. I'm feeling very good about my life. I want to live a long time. But just in case something happens, you know, we got this paperwork taken care of. So that's the logistics and the paperwork for what happens to us when it's all said and done and, and to make sure that the people that we love are taken care of so they don't have to worry about those details. But what about the the process of dying. What about those details about what could happen to you as you are in that position? And the question is, how do you want your end game to go? Uh, that's why I would read a lot about the current work and hospice work, because I know there's going to be a point where I do not want curative care. I do not want the aggressive technology of modern medicine trying to medicate me and radiate me and chemotherapy me and surgically attack me and all of that and try new medications on me just to extend my life. Because the interesting thing is that the other option is palliative care, where they take care of my pain. They keep me comfortable. I have somebody maybe that's giving me baths or helping me go to the bathroom or just kind of like taking care of me in a very nursing kind of way, but nothing curative. And what's interesting is that the research all says that that kind of care, the what's called palliative care, that hospice type caregiving, it actually extends life, but it only extends life by like 20 to 60 days. In other words, I mean, if you compare aggressive treatment with palliative treatment, palliative treatment actually is better for extending life, but it's only by 20 or 30 days. So I say to myself, how much effort do I want and expense, of course, both to the society, I have a little feeling, a little responsibility about how much my Medicare bills are. They may take care of it for me, but here I'm burdening the society and the system with whatever, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost. I'm not feeling so good about that. Uh, just what? To get me an extra 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? You know, come on. That's one of my philosophic things. I've led a good life. I understand doing everything you can to, to save somebody who's, you know, a baby or 20 years old or 30 years old or 40. But come on, I've lived a good life. I've been blessed. Let me exit smoothly now. Exit smoothly. This is a big issue in our society today. I mean, people are calling it death panels and doctor-assisted suicide and all that. I'm a big believer in the death with dignity. I believe death is a choice. I believe it's always a choice. I certainly am glad I didn't take it earlier in my life. Uh, and I would always encourage someone not to take that direction because if they last a little longer and are there, let their courage come up, they'll find uh, a purpose for living that is worthy and good, and they will be glad they did. But the point of it is, I believe death is a choice. And I think death with dignity means that if I'm coming to a point in my life, either because of the pain or the projection of what my end game will look like, it could be very painful, it could be slowly deteriorating, or if I start to lose serious cognitive function, if I start to move into Alzheimer's, I'm not recognizing people, I'm not remembering what happened yesterday. See, I'm just going to say, I want the choice to be gone. I don't want people remembering me as this drooling, dependent vegetable that doesn't recognize anything in the world. I'm sorry. Life isn't valuable to me in that way. 
quality of life matters to me. So I say all of this because it's a big issue facing the society, this idea of death with dignity. I think there's six or seven states that allow it, but it's under very tight circumstances. A doctor has to say you have less than six months to live and there's you know, there's all kinds of restrictions on it, which I understand they're trying to protect people from just inadvertently taking people out or relatives taking out somebody because they want their estate or all those kind of things that I suppose could go on. But we, we spend too much time talking about that little small percentage where it could be done wrong instead of serving the, the greater one, which is people's choice. And I want the choice. I really have said to my children, you may someday get an invitation to come visit me in Oregon. We'll have a big party and a celebration celebrating the life of Dave, dad, grandpa, and the next day you'll attend the funeral and we'll get it all done. And, and to me, that just makes so much sense. Now, I'm probably being a little controversial, but I'm just saying where my wisdom has come because what I don't want is to drain resources, be a burden on anybody, uh, or be a blithering idiot at the end of my life. So that's the second part, how you want yourself taken care of. And I would say all the way in that process, because of the complexity of the medical system, you need an advocate. As you start to move into the medical system, you need to hire someone to be your advocate, to go to appointments with you, to take notes, to make sure one doctor's care is being blended with another doctor's care. I've got so many people I know now, Matt, that they're going to one series of doctors after another, and one of them doesn't know what the other one's doing. And they have to keep repeating their information. And so our, given our incredible technological age and our ability to share and store information, our medical profession is so far behind. I mean, every time I go to a new doctor, I have to take a half hour to fill out all their forms, repeating the same information I've given to somebody else. And they don't have any of the records from the, my previous medical appointments. It just makes no sense. So that's a societal issue. I know we're talking this from a personal point of view, but from a healthcare system end of things, that level of lack of coordination is just unacceptable. So that's a lot about the logistics, but what about the personal stuff? What about doubts, regrets, you know, maybe things we have to deal with other people maybe in our lives that are kind of sitting in the back of our head? Is that something we should worry about and, and something we should focus on fixing too? The final thing, and I learned this from Final Gifts, and that is as you come to the end of your life, it's important to do those things that kind of feel right. Like this series you and I are doing, Matt. For me, as a seeker, this is kind of a nice summary statement of the things I've learned in my life, and hopefully it impacts some other people or sections of it does. But it, it doesn't really matter. That doesn't matter so much as it's been good for me because it's helped me crystallize how I think about things and what matters to me. The other thing is, are there people you need to make amends with? You know, is there someone you need to just ask their forgiveness or just admit that you screwed up or you hurt them or you did something wrong? Fess up, you know, own it. Uh, the other is, is, are there relationships that need to be healed? You know, maybe a close family member or a sibling or just a good friend that you blew off the relationship with. And you just need to say, hey, you know, I really love you. I care. I care about you. I'm sorry things went sideways. Is there any way we can just talk? You know, making those kind of things whole and feel better is good for them, of course, but it's very much good for you. And I think you come to the end of your life in a better place. So you mentioned about people and regrets and, and kind of things that you want to make sure that you personally have taken care of deep inside that you know are finalized and happy with. And when I think of that, a lot of times people think about the spiritual side because you start thinking about what happens afterwards or or whatever your your religious beliefs might be. They kind of coincide with that. I want to ask you about that. What What is the spiritual side of death that we should be thinking about? And is it a really important thing to kind of keep in mind as we're going through this process? You know, even before we're dying. It's important, and I don't have a clue. <laughs> 
You know, that's the thing. When it comes to this spiritual side, I mean, I'm a spiritual person. I believe there is a God, as we've discussed. I believe there's a higher power, an intelligence to this whole life that we're a part of. I think there's a life force. May the force be with you. I think there's this whole universe is imbued with this tendency toward creating uh, things that have power, have energy, become organic and have life. And then the life gets organized into higher complexities. And then we get into consciousness and mind and the ability to think about things, not to mention all the things that we can do. So I'm a deep believer in the in the process and spirituality, the growth of life toward a, a higher wisdom, a higher place. I think we're all part of that. What I don't know, and I've thought about it, I have no idea what happens after. I don't know what happened before. I don't know where I came from. I can't uh, go find past lives. I'm sure there's some DNA legacy I have. There could even be archetypes, as Carl Jung said, that I'm actually carrying human archetypes, meaning mental sets and mental images that get passed on. Who knows how they get passed on? If we believe in this the possibility of the Akashic field and this whole interchange of thought underneath where everything is connected, maybe that's where our spirituality comes from. Maybe that's where our essence comes from. Does it come from unique? Like, am I one unique spirit that now goes back into the bundle of spirits and now I come back in another body as another spirit? Is there karma? Is there all that stuff? You know what? It's all wonderful conjecture to me. I love reading about it. I love thinking about it. But I will tell you, Matt, I don't have any answers about it. I don't really believe in heaven and hell. I, I believe you you live a good life. I don't know what that leads to afterwards. I understand the power of religions to teach heaven and hell because it's trying to steer people's behavior toward better ways. I think there's a lot of rewards and inherent things that come directly out of our life that should lead us to good behavior. We don't need a heaven or hell afterwards to convince us. And I'm not even sure it does that much good for changing people's behavior. So I I don't know about that. I don't think there is one. I'm not worried about it. If you really took a full hard-nosed definition of what gets you into heaven, gets you into hell, I kind of have an idea where I'm going. It's going to be a little hot there, you know? So I don't know that, and I don't know things like reincarnation. Again, great thoughts and ideas, but see, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. I'm a, I'm a seeker. I don't see any proof anywhere about any of that. I know people come back and say, you know, they have near-death experiences and they see the light and all that stuff. Okay. All right. Good. Maybe that's there, but I don't think their recollection of that is convincing to me. So here's the thing. I think you lead a good life for the sake of the feeling of leading a good life. And I think you leave a legacy You get, as best you can. You serve other people. You do good things, you write books, you, you know, love people and hug them, you take care of them, you give gifts, you do everything you can to lead a good life because it inherently is meaningful. What happens afterwards, we're going to find out. I'm very curious about that. I am a seeker about what happens. Dave, let me ask you one final question. We're talking about death, but also how do we think about death when it comes to our own life and living every single day? I think it's simple, Matt. We know there's an end to this game. So we play it with everything we got. We leave it on the court. As an athlete would say, I just leave it on the court. I say celebrate life, embrace it, live it fully, and wear out, don't rust out. And I would say, finally, as a seeker, stay curious and mentally engaged all the way. To hear other episodes of the podcast, go to seekerthebook.com.